Revelation chapter 2, let's dive right in. Talking about the corrupt church. The corrupt church. We explored a number of different churches thus far, and it's been an amazing journey for me. I don't know about you. As we're going through these seven letters that Jesus is writing to seven specific churches, don't get thrown off by the whole angel thing when it talks about to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church in Smyrna, etc. The angel, that word just means messenger. So it could just be he's writing to the pastor of the church. And that's kind of the way that I'm taking it for the study this evening. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you came here today and you're like, well, I don't have a church. This message will still be applicable to you. Because although Jesus is saying specific things to a Christian leader, of a specific region, I think what you're going to find is this has relevance, not just for Christians, but for non-Christians too, because everybody is a follower. Everybody is. From the time that you're little and you're watching, in my generation, Michael Jordan wear specific brand sneakers, and then you're looking at him, I want to be like Mike. And so therefore you buy the same gear that he has or whatever your favorite athlete or singer or whatever, we emulate. And you'll also notice in history, there's never been a leaderless movement. There's always a figurehead, a person who's drawing all the people together, unifying them for a specific cause or purpose. So everybody has a leader that they listen to. And sometimes you've noticed, even in our climate, as we like to think of ourselves as, as you know, forward thinking, or we like to think of ourselves as conservative, or you know what, I'm just... I'm all about the facts or I'm empathetic. We like to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to oftentimes. And so we think that our ideas are our own, but a lot of, our, a lot of us get our ideas from leaders, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. And you'll see this on social media by the things that we post. And we'll post certain people that can say things better than we can, or they're just very eloquent in the way that they talk. And they'll be able to describe certain concepts and ideas and so here in this specific church, the church of Thyatira, they were a corrupt church because they had corrupt leadership. And Jesus goes as far as to say that there's a woman named Jezebel, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Jezebel had a terrible connotation in the Old Testament. She was an evil, wicked woman married to King Ahab, and she was the one who caused Israel, God's chosen people at that time, to commit spiritual adultery away from God, to worship Baal, false gods, and would kill many of God's prophets, did all kinds of different atrocities, much more than that. And so this name Jezebel, don't get thrown off as we read it, doesn't mean that there's a specific person named Jezebel. He's just saying that she's likened to Jezebel that's deceiving God's people. And so here we have a corrupt leader, a corrupt pastor who's allowing this corrupt leader to sway the opinion of this particular church. And I think that's kind of what you have in our day too, right? So the question is, can you trust the leaders that you chose? Imagine we can answer that question. Can we trust the politicians that we vote for? Wow. Like, how do you even figure that one out? I think as we explore this text today, we're going to be able to determine what voices, what leaders we should be listening to. Let's read verse 18, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have, 
till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed into pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father, and I give him the morning star, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we do have ears, but oftentimes we may not hear because there's stuff that's already inside of our minds, inside of our hearts, keeping out your pure word and what you're trying to say. So with your sword of your spirit, would you pierce through everything else, cut through all the distractions and speak clearly what you want to say. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we will leave change people. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many reasons why people may choose to stop attending a particular church. And maybe some of you have heard these reasons, right? It's too clicky. You know what? I, I can't stand the worship music. The guy who sings on Sunday just like drives me nuts. Or it's not my style. Or I'm not getting fed. I don't know if that's still a term that we use today, but definitely like when I was a teenager and in college, that's the thing that everybody said. And no one really knew what it meant. It's just like, you know, I'm just, I'm just not getting fed. I just feel so empty. And it's just this mystical that seems like really holy thing. But those that are not Christian hear that and they're just very, like even more confused than the Christians, right? So people have all these different reasons. And I remember that there is one home group that I can talk about this now because it's 10 years removed. So when I was about 20 years old, a group of my friends, um, we were starting to go to this home group led by this one guy who was attending the church at the time. But he just really felt like he wasn't getting fed. He wasn't growing. And so he started his own home group. And so, yeah, let's check it out. All my friends are checking it out. We'll go to this home group. But they started doing strange things, much stranger than things we would ever do here at Calvary Chapel Old Bridge. The things that they would do is first, like right off the bat, within a couple of weeks, they appointed elders of the home group. Right? Like, who does that? Like, isn't there like time that passes and you have these qualifications? Like, yes, you can be one of the spiritual leaders. And then on top of that, I had an argument with one of the people in the group. And they were telling me that if I wanted to continue to come, I had to have a sit down with one of the elders of the home group so that we could discuss, discuss our disagreement. It was already over. And you guys know me. I argue all the time with everybody. That doesn't mean that I'm mad at you. Just I'm mad at what you're saying. And so they'll, like, they sat me down so that I would have this conversation. It was just the weirdest thing. And then if it couldn't get any weirder, I missed one night of home group. And I, I was like, so how did it go? Well, they chose one of us because I guess this happened like in Spurgeon's Day or something where they would have a person praying in the basement during the Bible study. So they like selected at random a person who wanted to pray the whole time instead of do the Bible study. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. It was the strangest thing. So sometimes the grass is greener on the other side, right? Like you leave the church thinking that your church that you start is going to be better and winds up being even worse. It has worse problems. So people have different reasons why they may, may stop attending a church. But I would say, even if you like the style, even if you like the community, you need to be sure that you are there for the right reasons. And one of the biggest reasons to leave a church is if the leadership is messed up. It's corrupt, right? So we need to be making sure that the leadership of particular churches, fellowships, are listening to the Lord and leading and feeding the sheep. The Bible uses this description for these types of leaders. It calls them shepherds. And shepherds are to protect, care for, and feed the flock of God. It's just an imagery that he gives you here. And that's actually where you get the name pastor from and elder. Those are derivatives and they're um, interchangeable. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, here's what... The apostle Peter says to elders, he says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. In verse two, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
So the Apostle Paul is saying, Paul, Peter, got my words mixed up. So the Apostle Peter was saying that elders need to be examples to the sheep because if you're going to be a leader, your life should be worth emulating. Those of you here today that aspire to be leaders or pastors or elders or deacons or whatever, first ask yourself the question, is my life a life that I would want to be an example to younger believers, younger Christians? You need to be a good representative of the faith. And also not seeking for dishonest gain or power or because you're going to be able to lord over other people. That's what the world does. It's always people trying to one-up the other person and tear other people down. But in the church, it's an upside-down pyramid where the leader is at the bottom and the people are up top. And I exist to serve you. The only reason I'm here up on a stage is simply so that you could see me. I know a number of people that are just like, I never preach on a stage because it speaks like I'm above the people. And whenever I watch them teach, I can, I'm, the entire Bible study, I'm doing this because I can't see them. I'm like, I don't care what you do. Just figure a way so that I can see you when you're teaching. But elders for the church, leaders for the church, need to be examples, not like the world, not taking advantage of, but always asking the question, how can I serve them? How can I protect them from what's false? How can I care for them when they're hurting? How can I feed the flock? And you, what you have today is, I don't want to do a lot of pastor bashing, preacher bashing, but I'll just kind of go here vaguely. On social media, you have like people, people following their favorite pastors. Oh, he's my favorite pastor. I mean, he's not really your pastor. He does nothing for you other than he teaches the Bible, which is great. But that's a preacher. That's not a pastor. You understand the difference? To be a pastor means that you have, in some way, that person's looking over your soul. And so it's my responsibility to be continually praying for you guys, to be checking up on you guys. And listen, we have a large group. It's hard for me to stay in contact. So it's not all on my shoulders. That's why we have leadership. That's why you have home groups. That's why this church, as large as it is, has multiple elders and leaders and, and things like that. So that we can all watch over each other and to be able to see our blind spots. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul the Apostle now says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and, also, and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul's warning as he knows he's about to be killed, he says, If you're sheep and I'm a shepherd, there are wolves on their way to come and take advantage of the sheep. So we can have the best of intentions, but that doesn't mean that every pastor, every preacher does have the best intentions. Some of them do fleece the flock. Some of them do take advantage of you and want your money and ruin it for the rest of us because then we feel weird talking about money ever because of a few bad people that will take advantage of people that are poor and their resources and say, if you just give enough money to the church, God will provide and, and whatever lies like that. So the truth is there are people trying to take advantage of you. There are leaders and not even just Christians. There are leaders in this world trying to take advantage of you. And that is dangerous. And here this church at Thyatira was corrupt and the leadership was held responsible give you some more background of what was happening. There were these trade guilds as it was a very popular trade city, though it was much smaller than the last one we studied at Pergamos. And this city of Thyatira would have people who are working in this trade industry. And because it was so secular, a lot of them adopted these pagan practices. They would eat food and offer it to idols and then take the food afterwards and eat them and all these immoral practices and things that were just compromising for believers. And they would involve Christians in their idolatry and idol worship. It wasn't just about eating the food. We know that because of what Paul says about your conscience and things like that. But when the world is specifically looking for you to be able to involve itself in its corruption. So what I mean by that, it's like, it's like a world, worldly leader or your boss looking at you as a believer and saying, if you want to advance in this company, you need to make some compromises. You need to let go of your Christian beliefs or you need to let go of your, you know, the tightness of your morality and the things that are your convictions. You need to go party with us. You need to do the things that we do. 
That's kind of what it was like. And they were corrupting it. And what made it worse was it wasn't just the world that was saying this, but this one specific person who called herself a prophetess, Jezebel, was encouraging people to do it. No, it's totally fine. Go ahead. I mean, if you need to work, to live, to eat, then do it. That was kind of the idea. And so they were encouraging their sinful practices by the teaching, by the leadership. Here's what I would say. Be careful about putting too much stock in pastors' opinions. Be careful. I've done it. You've done it. Everybody's done it. Okay, I'm not talking about any particular person, but I just know this happens all the time. We look at leaders and we almost feel like they have a closer relationship to God. And so we have an idea of what we want to do and we go up to that person. We're just like, I just, I just need to know what they think. And whatever they say, it's like, this is the word of God. Even if it's just like, like this opinion that came out of nowhere that's not based on facts or anything. That's why I guard myself from being too forward in, in life-transforming, changing decisions that people may be making at any particular time because I don't want people to walk away thinking that, you know what, this doesn't make any logical sense, but Alan thought it was a good idea, so I'm going to go with it. And some people do do that, which is dangerous. So we always need to bring it back to the Word of God. If I tell you something and it goes against this book, you should leave this church, honestly. Like what? Because then at that point, you're worshiping me, which is really awkward, and I would never want anybody to do that. That's strange. We need to always bring it back to the Bible. And if what I'm saying contradicts the Bible, you can always toss out what I'm saying and bring it back to here. But here's where we have accountability. So sometimes I may say something and you're like, you know what? I don't know if that matches up with scripture. So there's nothing wrong with you questioning it. Nothing wrong with you coming up to me and having a discussion about it. That's how I grow. That's how you grow. We learn about this book together. But I do make it my job to be an expert on Jesus Christ and an expert on this book so that you can go about your vocation and I can serve you and empower you in helping guide you as to what God says on any particular matter. So you have the ability, if a church is ever corrupt, leadership is corrupt, you have the ability to leave. But then if you leave, who holds the church accountable? Who holds these false teachers accountable for their corruption? And the answer is, Jesus does. Look at verse 18 again. These things says the son of God. Yes, Jesus is God, has the very nature of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Very different de depiction of Jesus than what you're used to seeing today, right? But this imagery here is a metaphor, obviously, for Jesus being able to see with fire. What does fire do? It purifies. You take metal in. In order to get all the impurities out of gold, silver, brass, you put it into the fire. It extinguishes all those things, melts it down, and then you have a pure gold bar, silver, brass, etc. Fire purifies, and Jesus has the ability to see through all the situations, to see what the, the heart of the matter is. And his feet are like fine brass. Jesus is not going anywhere. He's not moving anywhere. There are people who have predicted that Christianity would one day be extinct and lo and behold, here it is, as powerful as ever before. Because we stand on the side of truth. And that's where if, if you've done the exploration, you've done the questioning, if you, you've done the research, you've looked into the science, all that stuff, you've arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is God, eventually you got to stop worrying because Jesus doesn't need you to defend him all the time. He really exists. And one day everybody will be able to see him face to face. So he has feet like fine brass. He is immovable. So we know that pastoral leadership, I myself, that's why the Bible says, let not many of you become teachers. You will incur a harsher judgment, which is a terrifying thing. Jesus himself is going to judge me for every idle word that I say. Hold me accountable. But now, let's ask this question. What about secular versions of leadership? The government, the corruption, the systems are broken. We're looking right now, what's happening in America, lots of injustice, lots of people outraged. And we're looking to the left, we're looking to the right, we're looking in the middle, we're looking every which way. And once again, we're asking the question, who can we trust to lead us? Because everybody seems messed up. 
Everybody seems corrupt. And the people that are corrupt, who is going to bring them to justice? And once again, the answer is, Sunday school lesson, Jesus. Jesus is still the same one who holds these corrupt governments and systems, the oppressors, accountable. And for the Christian, this is where our worldview has hope. Because all the efforts that you put in to eradicate injustice from the world, to help your neighbor, to love your neighbor, all those things will have their fruition because one day Jesus will return and he will judge and he will rule and he will bring justice to the earth. So there's um, a really corny bumper sticker. Years ago, you may remember it. It said, um, no God, no peace. Like N-O, God, N-O, peace. But then it also said, K-N-O-W, God. K-N-O-W, peace. So it's like, no God, no peace. No God, no peace. And I always thought that was like the worst bumper sticker ever. But um, you know what I was thinking? It's kind of true, isn't it? Like you don't need to, and this is where we can give hope to the people that are oppressed. You don't have to wait for Jesus to return to experience peace. You can just know Jesus. And I've seen that not just true in my life, but in the lives of countless others, people who have suffered things that I can't imagine. They've known Jesus and they've known peace. Because like Paul, I mean, think about him, right? He was persecuted, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was shipwrecked three times. He was, you know, some people in, in church history have said that Paul was so disfigured of a person. You would look at him and he just he wasn't pretty to begin with. But eventually his body was so disfigured from all the beatings, all the stonings. And so you would look at Paul and he himself was a demonstration of somebody who lived his life to the fullest in a, in a society that was totally, totally anti-God. And he said, the sufferings that I'm enduring cannot even be compared with the glory that I will receive when I meet with Jesus Christ. That's the guarantee that you and I have. And that's the hope for today. And which inspires and informs the way that we do justice today. So God holds people, even corrupt leaders, accountable. There was a Babylonian leader. So back when Babylon was a world empire, uh, a ruler named Nebuchadnezzar, real person, really did exist in history, but the Bible also has an account of his life. Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled the known world at that time, he started looking at you know, the seven wonders of the world. And he was creating all these vast uh, riches and these things for himself. And he looks out on this balcony at all of his, his, his work and the culture. And he says, look at this, this kingdom, this palace that I've built by my name for my name. And then a voice from heaven shouts down to him and says that you will be humbled for seven years. You'll be driven from men and you will eat grass, you'll drink dew, and you'll be like, a, like an animal until you know that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So God humbled them and this happened. And there's secular accounts of this as well, where they're just saying he kind of just disappeared for seven years. But he went nuts for seven years, just as the Bible says, and as God prophesied, in order to humble Nebuchadnezzar, to show him that all that stuff was given to him. God can give it to whoever he chooses. He can give it to the lowest of all men. And he just chose Nebuchadnezzar. It's not because of his effort. It's not because of his doing. It's not because he's an awesome person. It's because God gave it to him. And all of us need to recognize that, that God has the ability to humble the proud. But maybe you're thinking as a person who doesn't believe in God, okay, but then who holds God accountable? Hmm. Who's God's boss? How do we make sure that God is going to perform justice, that he's going to do right? Well, this thought itself stems from the fact that we as a society now have a distrust of all power and all authority. The very fact that someone has power over somebody else to us terrifies us. We're nervous how that power will be wielded. And this might stem from the Holocaust. Some uh, historians are looking at this right now as a phenomenon because of what happened in the Holocaust was it wasn't even just evil people 
doing evil things. It was that normal, seemingly normal people just went with the status quo and simply obeyed the authorities and followed them in whatever directions they gave. So that's why the thought was we need to go and rebel against the mainstream because we don't know where that's going to lead us. Listen to Brett McCracken, who wrote a book called Hipster Christianity. Yes, it's a book. Here's his thoughts on the matter. He said, after World War II, the logic of hip centered around the countercultural maxim that power of any and all kinds could never be trusted again. The majority must always be challenged, the authorities ceaselessly undermined, and the machine con continually raged against. Cool became primarily about rebellion and protest, even if it was unclear what was being protested and why. This is where you get virtue uh, signaling. And uh, this book was written in 2011, by the way. So you have a lot of people that are just kind of following the bandwagon against the man because they see power as problematic. And the fact that people have power. So looking at God and saying, well, God is part of the problem. He's allowing this to happen and he has enormous amounts of power. Well, a couple of things I'll say to that. Number one, if God really is who he says he is and he really did create this universe and he really is real, God is also the paradigm of goodness itself. So in other words, all this, this, this notion of goodness, this notion of justice, it has to come from somewhere. It's not just this elusive concept that just popped into being, Right. It has to originate from somewhere. And what the Bible shows us is God himself is good. To ask why is God good is kind of like asking, why are bachelors unmarried? That's just what it means to be a bachelor. In the same way, that's what it means to be God, that God is good. And we get our notions of goodness, of kindness, of love, all from him. Otherwise, where did it come from? And if he was evil, why would he even give us a notion of justice that we could use to judge him by and think he's corrupt, right? So I know that's a little tricky to follow, but just bear with me. So number two, so let's say you didn't understand what I just said. That's fine. So even if you feel like God could not be trusted because he has enormous, enormous amounts of power, did he not prove it that he's trustworthy when he relinquished that power, came onto earth as a human being, and then suffered the ultimate injustice and died on the cross for not his own sins, but for your sins and for my sins. Didn't he prove that he could be trusted with all the power in the universe, that he could be vindicated to the right hand of God himself because he shows what he does with his power. And if he did that for, for you and for me 2000 years ago and saved us from the biggest enemy of all, which is sin and death, would he not also bring justice to the earth? in any other ramifications it has? Any other remnants of evil that we see on this earth? Can't we believe that one day it will be gone? It will be corrected and God will make everything right? And should we not be inspired by that story and look at the people that are still living under the reign of sin, the reign of death and say, listen, I have good news. You're living under the chains of sin. You're living with guilt. You're living with the fear of death. And I can set you free because Jesus Christ set me free. So we may have trouble trusting politicians, pastors, leaders, because they failed in all their promises. But why not trust Jesus Christ tonight? And I'll give you an opportunity to do that if you have not done that thus far. So let's briefly now, now that we've talked about this concept of justice, let's talk about this, the church at Thyatira specifically how we can trust God to make a fair judgment and appraisal. So the rest of this passage here, we'll see that Jesus is addressing their sin and he's qualified to do that, by the way. We'll see the consequences of that sin and those who set themselves apart from the sin. So first, let's see what the sin actually was. Verse 19. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. He's saying like, you're gradually getting better at this. You're loving, you're working, you're serving, you got faith, you're patient with people. This sounds like a great mission statement for a church plant, doesn't it? Like you, you have a website, you're starting a brand new church and you just got love, patience, serving the community. We work for the community and we love everybody and have faith and whatever. Like that sounds pretty good. 
but they're missing the stuff that is most important. I remember a number of years ago, I was challenging people when we went to a, a mission trip in 2012 to Mexico because I was, uh, as I was going, you know, to Mexico to serve and to feed villages and care for orphans and all that stuff with some of the, the poor community there. I noticed that my alma mater uh, university that I went to was also doing um, a mission trip. I forget where, I think it was through Colombia. And it was a secular trip, but they did like this, this video to like promote it. And it was like last year's trip where people talk about my life was changed forever. I'm so grateful for everything that I have. And I'm so glad that I was able to go. It was a life changing experience. And literally, if I didn't tell you where this video is from, you probably would think that it's like a Christian mission trip video. And I looked at that video and I was really challenged and I wondered, what is it that makes what we do different than what the world does? Because it seems kind of similar, right? Celebrities, they go to the poor villages and they help people and they feed people and they play with people and they have the picture and they're like, yeah, I did it. And then Christians do the exact same thing. And they're like, oh, but we're Christian. So when we did it, we did it as if Jesus was doing it. Like, but how? How specifically did you do it differently? Because on paper, it all seems the same. But here's the thing. What's important for us is making sure that we do give them what no one else can give them. Not just feed their stomachs, but we need to feed their souls. We need to give them the good news that Jesus can set us free, right? If we really believe that and we neglect that, we're missing out on the most important thing in the universe. Micah chapter six, verse eight. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. A lot of people have been quoting that verse all the time about the, you know, social justice and all that stuff. Great. Did you catch the last part? That just as we are to do justice, we are also to walk humbly with our God. In other words, God doesn't just want us to do right moral actions, but he wants us to have a relationship with him. That is so important that we do that. As we are walking about and we're doing acts of kindness, etc., that we just know God and we're asking him for direction. We're not looking to the world to set our pace, to set our direction. We're asking the God of the universe to tell us what it is that is on his heart. Who are the people that he wants us to minister to? So we do it not because we're afraid of what people think, but we're doing it because we know that God's called us to a specific ministry. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So first, he says, you allow that woman Jezebel. Sometimes things are allowed and permitted to happen in church that really should not be allowed or permitted. And my thought is you shouldn't wait for the pastor or leader, leadership to step in. You have a responsibility as a Christian when you see things that are, that are going on that should not be happening, that if you see something, you should say something. You should deal with it, right? The Holy Spirit lives in me, lives in you. We have, we have the ability to hold each other accountable. And if things are you know, happening that shouldn't be happening here, you should deal with it appropriately. Not gossip about it and talk to 50,000 other people, but go to that person, Matthew 18, directly, immediately, and resolve it. I think about how many people left the church that could have stayed if they'd only had the conversation. But we don't have the conversation because we're afraid of what people think. It's the fear of man thing. But it's commanded by God, and therefore it's very important. So anyway, moving on. So you allow... That woman, Jezebel. Now we talked about her a little bit, not literal, but this woman who allowed Baal worship and all kinds of different things, idolatry. But she was also known for massacring God's prophets. Just think about that. In this context, so you have corrupt leadership and here's this woman, Jezebel, who's a rep representation of the real Jezebel that happened in the Old Testament, known for massacre, massacring old prophets. And bad doctrine will massacre, spiritually, God's people. That's what leads to heresies, false doctrines. Those things will lead people away from the faith. And some people do. Some people walk away 
because of bad doctrine. Some people, they've heard Christians even have sloppy doctrine and say things and they're just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never heard that before and I don't think that's true. And it's a terrible witness. That's why we need to be thinking about how we articulate the gospel to other people. I've, I, maybe I used this recently. I don't think I did. But there is a, an apologist, or evangelist rather, who would go around sharing the gospel with people. And the way that he would do it is that he would go up to them. He had other tactics too, but one of his favorite tactics was to break out a banana and say, see this banana? This banana is proof that God exists, and I can show you why. And the person goes, show me why. And he goes, look at it. It's just perfectly, like it shapes it's, its shape is like perfect for your hand. As you peel, it has this protective layer so there's no bacteria inside of it. And it's just like form-fitted for you to be able to eat it and consume it and dispose of the peel. And it's just, I, I can't even articulate it well because it's not a well-articulated argument, right? And it sounds that bizarre. And I remember watching it and thinking about how many people walk away from the faith because of crazy people like that. They just say things and they're stupid. And we should call them out gently in love, but then call them out. I don't think that's effective. And listen, when you are asked hard questions, you should have good answers for the things that you believe. Don't wait till somebody has a question that you can't answer. Do some research. Look up some apologetics. Get a book. I can recommend some of, you, uh, some of them to you. But it's worth, uh, worth doing because you may have a chance in that one conversation to allow somebody to go, you know what? I will take a second look at this. I will see what Christianity has to offer. So... Next, she calls herself a prophetess. Already addressing that, right? And to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So she was specifically causing them to violate their God-given morals, their conscience, and was approving of things that would lead them astray. Kind of like the doctrine of Balaam that we talked about last week. Now, verse 21 I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. And then we'll talk about the consequences next. But let me just talk about repentance, okay? That's a big biblical word. A lot of people may know it in a negative connotation. Like they see the guy with the signs at the protests and the rallies or just walks around and goes like, repent or burn, you know? And you look at that and you just, because of that, you just, it's an archaic word they don't really understand. Repent just means to change your mind. You're going in one direction, you just turn around and go the opposite direction. That's what it means by repent. So that means to look at these, these morals and say, you know what? I'm deciding to let go. That's evil. That's wrong. That is anti-God, and I'm going to follow him instead. I'm going to repent of that. You had an opinion. You had a belief. And now you've let go of it and you've gone a different direction. But where a lot of people get tripped up, and maybe this will be a little bit encouraging for some of you, if not most of you, is people get tripped up on what, like how far they have to go for repentance. In other words, sometimes repentance can seem like, like a good covering for legalism. And they start beating themselves up because they feel like they haven't repented enough. So... A person struggles with addictions, whether it's visual addictions or it's drugs or alcohol or whatever. And they, they, they go on this, this streak and they're able to be able to go six months without looking at stuff, consuming stuff, whatever. And then they slip up again. And now they're like, oh no, because I didn't really repent. Now God's going to hold me accountable. And now I'm going to go to hell. Now I'm not forgiven. And, and they just go down that cycle of thought. But you need to know this. Jesus died once and for all, for all your sins. Past, present, and future. It's done. You're forgiven. When you believed on Jesus Christ, you are saved. Now, that's not to mean that you have to completely neglect the actions. But I kind of think about it like this. It's kind of like marriage. That might sound weird at first, but I'll explain. So what makes a person married, right? So if you're getting married, do you have to? go to the governmental office and have the marriage certificate. And if you don't, then you're technically not married. Well, in the eyes of the state, but in the eyes of God, well, who knows? Well, let's say that you are getting married and then 
you, you have the paper and you sign the paper. Are you then technically married when you sign the paper, even if you didn't have the ceremony yet? When the pastor prays. Is it when you say I do? Is it when you put on the rings? What constitutes when a person's married? Well, whatever your answer is, we can all agree that there are certain elements that go into what constitutes marriage. And at the same time, you would look at whatever form it took place and then subsequently, as people are acting in marriage, um, you can see what ties people together in that vow, that commitment they, they made to each other might have different circumstances, might have different facts, different data, but it's still the same commitment. And that's what binds people together. When you say yes to Jesus, you're making a vow to him and he's making a vow to you. It's not like you suddenly like disappear and like, oh no, I don't know if I actually prayed the sinner's prayer. I don't know if I walked up and did the altar call thing. I don't know if I pressed the button online. And so am I really saved? Did you commit your life to Jesus at some point? I don't really know if I did. I don't, I don't know if I was serious enough. Remember that he's made a vow to you as well. However, if you made a vow, right? You got married and then you never wore your wedding ring. You never talked about your wife or your husband. In fact, you never have any pictures with them. You never see them. You move to a different state. Like, are you really married? Even if you did everything right. Even if you signed the paper, you had the pastor there, everything. But there's like no mention, no action, no love, no nothing. Are you really married? That's kind of the question that happens in Christianity. If you vowed to God and there's no subsequent fruit whatsoever as a result of that decision, I would ask, are you really married to God? Have you really made that vow to him? Have you made a commitment? It's not just a name that you put on things, right? This is where repentance, remember, is change your mind. You're thinking differently and you're walking differently as a result. So hopefully that was a little helpful. If you're discouraged and you're worried, anxious, don't be. Because remember that God has made that vow to you as well. And believe on him tonight if you haven't done that. Okay, verse 22. Let's talk about the consequences. We'll, we'll speed up here and we'll draw it to a close. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, before you freak out, because that sounds crazy, right? Um, most likely this is not a literal thing. Remember, Jezebel is that metaphor, not necessarily that person's name. In the same way, when it talks about casting her into a sickbed, it's a metaphor of committing spiritual adultery and these people are undergoing tribulation because of it. And when it says, I will kill her children, most likely as this is spiritual adultery, there aren't actual children coming out as a result. So this is talking about um, something to do with the results of their sin, that it would have consequences. Now, even if that doesn't really make sense to you and to me, because we don't know the specifics, specifics of it, the point is, remember, this book wasn't written to us. It was written for us, but it was written to this church at Thyatira. So whatever he means by this, they knew exactly what he meant when he said this. And it says, all the churches shall know, right, by the, the results, the consequences of your sin, will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So he's saying, I need to prove, I need to show that this church does not represent me. And I will do that by exposing this church and every, all the surrounding churches will know that I am the one who searches your minds and searches your hearts. And you need to know that if you have sin still lingering in your life, unrepentant sin, you're not willing to let go of it, that sin will find you out and it will have consequences. And yes, God does know your thoughts. He does know your heart. And, and sometimes people use that in a, like a positive way, like God knows my heart. Well, that may not be a good thing because our hearts deceive us. They lead us astray. We start convincing ourselves of all kinds of different wickedness and sin. I used to say it like this, like I am very good at convincing myself and rationalizing almost anything but I am very bad at convincing other people of what I'm doing is right. If you, that's why we have accountability, right? You're, you're going to be thinking like, oh, I'm thinking about dating this guy. I know he's not a Christian. I know, hmm, I don't, you know what? It's probably fine because I know this one person worked out and yeah, 
it's probably fine. So I, yeah, let's do this. And you talk yourself into this. And then when you articulate it to your friend, your friend's like, that sounds dumb. And you're like, I know it's dumb. I just, I was just testing. I, I wasn't really serious about the thought. I just had a thought. So whatever it is, you know what I'm talking about? Like, that's how we act. We're so good at convincing ourselves. And I learned that not through a Christian. I learned that through my acting professor. Because he would always, like, when we would go up and we started acting, he would say, what are you doing right now? And then we would give an excuse. And he's like, you know what you're doing right now? You're rationalizing. If I had to ask you what you're doing and you're an actor and you can't demonstrate it by what you're doing, you're not doing a good enough job. And so that's how he used it. So any, that just sort of stuck with me. Anyway. Lastly, let's talk about verses 24 through 29. So we have, now to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira, as many do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Like that song Josh was singing before. And he who overcomes and keeps my words and uh, works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And I also have received from my father and will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. A lot of things there, but let me kind of wrap it up in this because I know you guys have been sitting for a while. You're not used to doing four to five minute Bible studies, so we need to ease you into it. But there was a remnant that was living in the city that was not practicing those things. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to tell you to do anything else. Hold fast. Just hold fast to what you know. Hold fast to me until I return. That's what he's saying. We don't need to know the depths of Satan, but we do need to know the depths of God. And so if we have the truth, we're convinced that we have the right leadership. Our leader ultimately is Jesus. We're following him. Don't let go. Keep going. Like you're on the right path. If you're getting discouraged and you're like, I don't know what's happening. This world's crazy and I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. And hold fast to what you have. What do you have? Do you have Jesus Christ? Do you have hope? Do you have eternal life? Hold on to that. Do not let it go. I'll share with you a, a vulnerable story before we close. Uh, so this past, well, about 10 years ago, for a period of about maybe three years, I used to, and a lot of you that know me know this, I used to have panic attacks all the time. They're debilitating, couldn't leave the house, um, and it would get worse and worse. I would always make excuses because me being a guy, it was just like embarrassing to say that I would have panic attacks. Those of you that would have them know exactly what they are. It's the most terrifying thing. Like all logic goes out the door and you're like, I am dying, this is it, I'm going to die, right? And it happens for about 20 or 30 minutes. And so I would have them so frequently that, and during that time, I wasn't really walking with the Lord. That was probably one of my lowest points in general. And so then I was just like, well, I'm never going to be rid of this. I'm going to be a hermit for the rest of my life, live inside my house, never leave. I'm not going to have any friends. And then God hates me on top of it because I'm living in sin. So I had all these thoughts on, like piled on top of each other. But one by one, I was able to be set free of those things. And um, so this past Saturday, I... I don't know if it's quarantine. I don't know. There's a whole number of different things, physical things. But this past Saturday, I started getting another panic attack. And I haven't had, I maybe had one in the past 10 years, ever since God like set me free of it. And as it was happening, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is happening. This is so weird. It was so strange. And those of you that have it, you'll know what I'm saying. So let me explain a little bit for people that don't understand. When you start having a panic attack, the first thing that you think about is I need to escape. I need to find a safe place. I need, I need to just turn around. I need to go home. 10 years ago, what I would do is I'd be driving on a highway. I was supposed to go to class and I would drive in a loop. Right on Route 18, there's a, a loop I would always do. I think it's exit 25 something. But it's just, you just go in a figure eight. And I would do that for 15 minutes. Just deciding, do I want to keep going and die or just turn back and go home where I'm going to be safe? And I knew it made no sense. And before you know, it's like I'm driving longer in a circle than it would have just taken me to get there. But for whatever reason, you just think, I need to turn around. I need to go home. I need to just leave, right? Um, so then I could start getting that feeling again on Saturday. Like I was driving 40 minutes somewhere. I was going to meet with someone. And I had that feeling like I need to turn around. I need to go home because I'm going to die. And the thing that got me through it 10 years ago was 
eventually getting to a point where I'm saying, I don't care if I die. I'm not going to live my life this way. I need to start trusting that God's going to be there no matter what. He's going to be faithful. And maybe I'll suffer with panic attacks the rest of my life, but I have to start believing that my life is not going to amount to me being stuck at home, living as a hermit forever. But trusting that God's going to be there. The sun's going to rise tomorrow, right? And even if you can't see that today, you know it. You trust in what you know, not trust in what you don't know. So that's what got me through it 10 years ago. And so I knew if I was going to get through this again, the only thing I could do is hold fast to what I did now and just keep going. It's like the most difficult decision in that moment because there's everything in your body that's saying, I don't want to keep going. Your heart's beating, you're sweaty, you're dizzy, you got cotton mouth. Just taking a deep breath and saying, I'm going. I'm holding fast to what I know. I don't care. But here's the other thing that you find out. And this is where I'll close with. Everybody look up here. When you choose to hold fast, you find out something else. So Tatum, three years old, tiny, cutest little girl in the world. Um, when we're crossing the street, she knows she can't cross the street unless she's holding my hand, right? Tiny little hand. I still ask for her to hold my hand, but really, if a car's coming, who's the one who's going to have uh, the ability to save her? It's not her. It's not her strength. It's mine. And you find out as you make that decision to keep going forward no matter what, that God has been holding on to you this whole time. And that's what I found Saturday, right? Just keep on, I'm making a decision. You find out all this time, God has been the one holding me. Yes, I've been choosing God. I've been holding on to him, but he's the one who's been holding fast to me. And Jesus said that all who come to me, I will by no means cast out and no one will be able to snatch them from my hand. If you have not committed yourself to Jesus today, why trust in your own strength? Why trust in your own power? Why not know the hand that will never let you go? Let's pray.